1: talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there.
0: Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? the final word podcast yes you do that's right it is the final word on all things political and pop cultural where we make real news real funny where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist subscribe and get a new episode of the final word podcast each week it's the news we think you need to hear that's right we think you need to hear it okay Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий
2: Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show today from the Mississippi Free Press. The co-founder, executive director and editor Donna Ladd is here. This is a really fantastic conversation, I think. She, she's a fascinating person. And the Mississippi Free Press is doing really amazing, remarkable work... Taking local journalism and making it relevant, I think... Uh, to stuff happening on the national level. This is... Uh, I didn't know anything about the Free Press until I sort of discovered them on Twitter... Because some of these articles were being shared uh, widely... Because the reporting is so good. And even though they focus on stuff happening in Mississippi... What they focus on applies elsewhere in the country because that's just the nature of the coverage. The mission of the free press is to really, you know, key in on these local places and do what what Donna calls uh, systemic reporting, which looks at systems um, and does deep dives into how things got to be the way they are and then solutions based journalism, which is how we can fix those things. So it's really a great organization. It's a great publication. They have really good reporters. I I recommend uh following them on Twitter, bookmark the page, and if you can, donate to to the project. It's just, you know, it's really good stuff. Donna herself is a fascinating person. She um was born in rural Mississippi in the same county as uh the Mississippi Burning murders that happened right when she was a a small child. So she's always been very aware of racism and very interested in it and wanting to be an activist, an anti-racism activist from a very young age. And she left Mississippi as as soon as she could, went around the country doing jobs here and there, wound up being a journalist, uh, went to Columbia Journalism School, uh, you know, later in life to get her master's in journalism and has done a bunch of remarkable things. And it's just, you know, she has a lot of, uh, uh, of things to say about, about race, obviously about, Misogyny in in, in journalism and in the country and and, and stuff like that, about media in general and how the media failed, and about Mississippi and what we can learn from Mississippi, what people like me in New York can learn about, you know, can learn from Mississippi, which I think we all can. It's It's an inherently fascinating place, I think. And the history is so essential to what is America, for better and for worse, you know, because a lot of things happen there that... That are not so good, and a lot of things happened there and people came from there who were these wonderful, talented, amazing people. So I think I think Mississippi is is super uh, interesting, fascinating, worthy of taking a look at. And you know, Donna was terrific. So I'm gonna stop talking now. I wanna get right to the interview. We'll be right back with Donna
3: Ladd.
2: Hello, me Rob Monster. We like free speech. Me old Monster web host company called Epic. Epic spelled with K. Why with K? Because... K is for Klansmen. We host them every day. K is for Klansmen. We hope them every day. K is for Klansmen. We host them every day. Oh, Epic like to host a KKK. You know how Monster Web Company track where you go? Cookies! This Rob Monster... Now back to show, goodbye. Donna Ladd, welcome to the Prevail podcast.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: So you are the the, the founding editor and the executive director of the Mississippi Free Press, which is something that I found basically on Twitter. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm on Twitter thing. I don't know how they do their, their algorithms or this or that, but for some reason I was drawn to the, the reporting that you guys have been doing, especially lately in the time of, of COVID and, and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's just really good. Like it, it just, it, it was good enough to attract my attention from up here in New York to be like, Oh my God, these guys are doing really good work. And also what's going on down there. Um, so, first of all, congratulations on that. It's just thank you. It, you know, thank from from where I sit, it's a pretty successful, uh, you know, venture at least in terms of penetrating the uh, the the bubble of all the stuff that's out there uh, in the world. I'm gesticulating with my arms, and you can see me, but nobody <laughs> listening can see me. Um, but I'm doing to do it anyway. Before we start, though, I want to ask. Okay, so the hurricane Ida came through. How are you? How is everybody in your neck of the woods? Are you okay? Obviously, you have power, so that's good.
4: Yeah, yeah, actually, um, I'm in the capital city, you know, in Jackson, which is uh, central Mississippi. And we didn't know what to expect because, you know, we were also here for Katrina and didn't have f- power for two weeks and yeah. hey, all sorts of things around that. In Jackson, you know, a couple hours from the coast or almost three hours, I think. And uh, but this one didn't hit us. It didn't hit us too hard here in the capital city. I mean, it, it felt, for my house, it just felt like another storm. And we were very fortunate. We were ready, you know, bathtub full of water and all that. But, so for us, we're, we're fine. That doesn't mean that everybody on the coast is fine, obviously. And um, it, they, uh, but, but it's also not as bad for people as Katrina and past hurricanes. So it's kind of that mixed bag.
2: OK, that's that's good here, because sometimes it's hard to tell if you're not in mm-hmm. it. And, and especially sometimes if it's not super catastrophic, the media just forgets about it. And all these people are suffering and nobody finds out. And it's it's almost worse in a sense. So I was just curious to you know, I just wanted to start yeah. with that.
4: Well, um, and I should say there are people who who have devastating impacts from flooding you yeah. know, along the coast and in and, and other areas. So I'm not taking away from that at all.
2: No, no, of course. Of course. Um, I want to talk to you today about, I want to talk about you, because you, you've you had a pretty remarkable career and a pretty remarkable, as I see it, pretty remarkable life, <laughs> pretty really impactful and, uh, you know, just cool, um, what's the word, exemplary uh, career in life. And it's, it's, it's really nice to see that. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about Jackson Free Press, Mississippi Free Press, and how those things came to be and your mm-hmm. career there. I mm-hmm. want to talk about. Um, institutionalized racism and the reporting that goes into the systemic, as you mm-hmm. call it, systemic reporting on those issues, and mm-hmm. which is something I know you're a big uh, proponent of. And I know there's a big uh, project, I guess, that you guys are rolling out and mm-hmm. how you're going to attack that. I want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about th- just the mainstream media in general and how you <laughs> see it has, has <laughs> changed and failed and not failed and you know, in the last 20 years, but also in the last five years, maybe. Right. And then also, I want to talk about Mississippi, because I, I I, was telling you this before we hit record. I just find Mississippi inherently fascinating. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because we used to say the word a lot. We played like football on the playground, you know, one Mississippi, two or but I think it's just it's this it's cool. There's something inherently cool about it. And, and, and it's this diverse <laughs> mix of of lots of different stuff going on. And you have these super talented people that come out of Mississippi and yet you also have things like you know very low rankings in education and, and, and stuff like that. So it it almost doesn't make sense to me. So I wanna I wanna try to pick your brain and maybe. Maybe you can help me make sense of it a little bit. Well, um, I actually
4: appreciate you calling it cool. That's something I don't often hear about in Mississippi, but uh, yeah, there's it's a complicated place.
2: Complicated. That's a good. <laughs> that's a good word for it. So, um, start off a little bit. Tell, tell us, uh, t- tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and, and how you got to be uh, where you are. Because you have a pretty interesting backstory.
4: Well, I always like to say it's kind of an essay question, but <laughs> um, um, well, I think the the you know the most. Imp- Important thing I think uh, where I always start is the fact that I'm from Philadelphia Mississippi um, which is Neshoba County and that is where uh, Cheney Goodman and Schwerner were killed when I was three the three civil rights workers um, Mississippi burning as they call it right um, and they um, they were people I knew and and at least in one case related to um, were part of that lynch mob, um, but what's what I would say is the most relevant about that is that I didn't know about it until I was fourteen, yeah, um, because the, you know, I was kind of that transition generation, and everybody shut down about it, you know, um, and nobody would talk about it after all of the media coverage and all and and the case, the, the trial, the federal trial, and all that. But in the interim, the bizarre part <laughs> is that. First of all, I come from what I can say were two illiterate parents, although my father could write a little bit and went to the third grade. Uh, But my mother never um, went to school a day in her life until she was 60. But that's the other end of the story. Um, And, you know, and I came along later in life with two older brothers, but I grew up like an only child. So I was like really into, you know, I. I read a lot and she really pushed encyclopedias on me and the freedom. And uh, you know, when I was old enough to start writing, I would do, she kept it her literacy secret. So I would do all of her business as she called it and those kind of things. But the other thing that was true is that I was uh, for, people often ask me why and how, <laughs> but I was kind of obsessed about racism even as a, an elementary school kid. You know, I have I was writing about these things in my diary um, and um, and I, I tend to think it was because my mother was really smart and really open minded um, within her ability to, yeah. uh, you know, she used the N word when I was little. Because that was what everybody said. Right. Um, but it was kind of like at one point I said, you know, that's that's not a good word. Don't do that anymore. And she said, I'm sorry and stop doing it. Um, because she understood that, right? Yeah. Um, at that point. So, you know, so I just kind of came up obsessed with, uh, with it, in public schools, they're obsessed with uh, racism, also sexism. I uh, was very outspoken in school about sexism and uh, women's lib, as we called it then <laughs> in the 70s. Um, you know, so I wanted to, I didn't really know what being a journalism, a journalist, certainly not the kind of journalism I am was because we didn't have any good journalism in the state um, w- when I was growing up here. And in fact, very bad journalism, which you're probably aware of, very racist journalism earlier on. And so I was, I, but I was kind of had this activist spirit, you know, and so I wanted to change things. But at the same time, you know, I was so, especially after I found out about Cheney Goodman Schwerner, I was so angry that at Mississippi and how it just kept trying to push me out. That's the way I felt about it. And it, trust me, it's tried to since I've been back too, but you know, they're <laughs> out of luck this time. Um, and but, So I had this push pull to get out uh, or to stay and change things, but I c- honestly couldn't stay. Uh, and I ended up going to Mississippi State here because I couldn't afford to go elsewhere and got a scholarship, thought I was gonna become a civil rights attorney you know, so study political science and all that. A John Stennis scholarship, which is interesting. And now I under know the more complicated history of Senator Stennis than I did then. But um, and so it was. But the day after I graduated from Mississippi State, um, I left, and I was I was going to go to law school, and I did go to law school. I think first semester at George Washington hated it. Ended up dropping out and becoming a club DJ, but that's no story. <laughs> but I, it's true, true story. The club DJ stuff is what funded my, me becoming a journalist. So it was all okay. good. But so then I got on, a, just started, and I'll, I'll kind of stop the story here and let you take me where you want me to go. But I, I kind of got involved I, <laughs> with local journalism. You know, I, I started getting involved in local journalism in other places. And I was a self-taught journalist. I never, I never studied journalism until I went to Columbia, bizarrely enough, uh, (laughs) my mama would have been proud, Um, when I was 40 in in a mid-career master's, and uh, (laughs) which is funny to me, but, and then ended up coming back to Mississippi, but I just skipped a bunch of stuff, but it was, that's the kind of path, it was, what I always tell people is that it was backward, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't set out, I didn't know what kind of journalism. I, you know, I thought of journalism as just he said she said crap, you right. know, the kind of stuff I was growing up around, and that we still have too much of in some cases. But um, I didn't really understand them. I like to write and that, you know that that journalism could be well written. It wasn't like we were getting the best journalism in the in this, or at least yeah. I wasn't, you know. So uh, you know, so it was just kind of self-made along the way and following my instincts, I guess.
2: I think it's interesting that, that, that it worked out for you that way because my, my sense of journalism is almost better to have a broader base of operations and understanding of things and then do it mm-hmm. rather than if you're just doing that, you don't have something else to draw from. So I mm-hmm. see, I'm not surprised that, that you know, someone who, um, first of all, who writes as well as you do has done other things. Uh, you you talked about the story with your with your parents. There's a, it's a there's a beautiful piece that you wrote in the Guardian about about your mother, which is I read it before uh, this uh, this interview this morning, and you know it, it made me teary. As I said, and I encourage everybody to you know to go check that out. But um, to come from that background, you're also in a position where you do have to kind of figure it all out on, on your own. It's not like you come from a family of journalists where they say, okay, now you go Uh to, you go to Columbia J school. And from there you go work at AP or whatever. Um, You know, it's, it's a non-traditional thing. I actually, I, I used to be a recruiter at Associated Press just sort of randomly So, you know, the way that that we looked for certain people, but I it was always better in my mind to get people from different backgrounds and that had different life experiences that they could, you know, uh, pull into the thing. So, wait, when you were the club DJ, were you still in Washington or were you somewhere else? This is important. I was
4: in Washington. I I started uh, right downtown there. It was uh, at um, for, you know. what what they at least used to call the pubic triangle, but were deja vu and those, I wasn't a deja vu, I was at a place around the corner and then there was a place called, uh, actually deja vu was a big club then and I ended up there. It was when we were all playing, the the trendiest thing where it was like big chill music because of that era, you know, and for young people, you know, at meat markets, they're like dancing to Motown and so I got to know a lot of music and it was just natural for me because you know, I hadn't heard a lot of black music growing up, quote, unquote, black music. And it was during that time that I just kind of embraced all sorts of music. And I liked to dance. So I was just kind of it, I was kind of a natural at it. I love doing it. And it's what one thing I always say about DJ is that it um, that's when I learned not to be shy on a microphone, because I had to learn that because a lot of it was about talking. And as a woman uh, club DJ, then I was actually really unusual. So. People like that and people would call me the dancing DJ because I'd be dan- dancing in the DJ booth and stuff. But it really was, I say I, I talk about that as a uh, especially to young people because uh, it gets their attention A. But second, it, as it was a um, it's part of my career it was to figure out uh, for two reasons. One, to get past that shyness, you know of just kind of talking on a microphone, thinking on my feet, right? The second was that uh, most of the uh, club owners I worked for were intensely racist. And this was during the uh, early 80s. And uh, I like to say Madonna and I became successful in the music world at the same time. But uh, but so uh, hip hop was crossing over, right, into mainstream dance music. And so of course you get this mix of people who, uh, and, and white people wanting, you know, wanting um, more hip hop music mixed in. And I cannot tell you, cause I worked in a number of different clubs after a while and I did it over 10 years and <laughs> five states, but that's another subject. But the um, club owners in all of those states, none of which were deep South would come up to me and tell me to stop playing that in music, every wow. state. And uh, Massachusetts had happened Uh, you know so uh so what one of the lessons it taught me along with some other things that happened because when I left Mississippi I was so angry at Mississippi and I believed it was the most racist place on the planet and blah 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 you know and the club work along with some other experiences just with idiots um taught me that this is a real real universal problem it's just people don't face it enough and don't understand it and they they want to scapegoat a place like Mississippi which deserves <laughs> all sorts of of, of uh, I don't know it deserves deep understanding of the racism and the racism racist roots and the things that happened here but those were things that were benefiting the country and and I even have a series coming out soon that's going to explain more in depth about how a lot of our racism was kind of funded from elsewhere, and uh, our efforts, and so uh, it's complicated. But anyway, that's my DJ answer. Is that it was it really taught me a lot at a time where I was having a good time drinking and dancing and getting other people to dance at the same time.
2: No, it's not. It sounds like you had a lot of fun, and again, it informs everything going forward. It made me think when you mentioned. Um, obviously the pervasive racism everywhere but the tendency of people elsewhere to be like well you know mississippi is the Uh, real racist place and that uh, kind of thing where where i don't know what what the psychological term is i guess maybe it is scapegoating where you just say you know put let's put it all on that i don't know if you saw there's a a documentary on hbo called exterminate all the brutes that ran
4: you know Um, i haven't seen it i know about
2: it it's um It's it's don't don't watch it if you're in a depressed mood, I would say, but it's very, very interesting and and, and well done. And one of is the, it the army, race science, it's it's about that. But it's about it's there's a lot of Nazi stuff in there. And yeah, what he's yeah. saying is that um, what we the, the, the story we like to tell ourselves in Europe and especially in the United States is that the Nazis were, you know, they did this terrible thing. They tried to kill all the people and take their land we went there and fought them and defeated them. And now we're, we're done. You know, we wipe our hands and it's clean without looking at the fact that, you know, 200 years or 150 years before that, Americans, white Americans here did the same thing with the, you know, with the native population. So um, again, it, the fact that we that we look at, well, Nazis are bad. We know that is is similar in my mind to, you know, racists in the North saying, well, you know, Mississippi are the real racists without it, you know, without taking ownership of it themselves. That's what
4: Right. And it gets, it's even closer than that, and and I won't go too deep into this because a lot of it's going to be in my series, but the, the connections between what was going on it, it, with the efforts to blow up racism in the South um, and the North and the roots, and also early on the roots between what was going on with Northern racism and uh, the Nazis. I mean, all of that is, you know, all of that is part of our history. And then on slavery, um, you know, that one kind of makes me really crazy because, uh, you know, even by the time, there was there's so much history there, I could go on, but, but you know, Wall Street was, was benefiting from slavery long after uh, the North had uh, officially abolished slavery. And so there's all, there's so much there and a lot of the money from a lot of the people who were large slave owners in the deep South you know, were from other places. And I don't say that I hate it. I want to put that in context. And I think you know this because you follow us and read us. That is in no way taken away from what was happening right here in the South. I mean, we're probably the loudest and most uh, direct critics or, you know, amateur historians about the, the truth about Mississippi. We have a Mississippi race violence project going on where we're going county to county to explain that this uh, blanket of white terrorism was over the whole state and it went way beyond the Klan. Um, And so, so I want your listeners to understand I'm not another one of those Southerners who said, Oh yeah, but there's racism everywhere. My thing is that you, you own your own stuff and you understand it. And then you understand the connections outside and then you call out all those people around the country who kind of think that, you know, they want to, they want to, put all the country's racist history in Mississippi or, and or the deep South, and then not look at their own front yards or what their own stuff is named for. You right. know, even with naming and statues, I'm all about, and you know, moving these horrific Confederate statues and, you know, all of these things. But they're just, I mean, Massachusetts alone, <laughs> the, 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 um, the things, That institutions are named for, and including in Harvard, and some of what some of their own presidents did and such is just people need to understand that this is a national problem. And we need a national reckoning. And what you said at the beginning of this conversation about Mississippi, Mississippi, and paying attention to what's going on in Mississippi, and especially the kinds of stuff that, you know, the look at you in the eye reporting, as one of our donors called us, what we're willing to put out there about the truth can help other people you know connect the dots in their own in their own states and we encourage them to do that and you've probably seen we call out people who show up and just oh well that's the reason boycott everything in Mississippi it all sucks it's like no there are a lot of good people in Mississippi Mississippi is the most beaten down state Um, and why is you know in part (laughs) because we have the highest proportion of African-Americans. So we're a huge threat politically, um, which people don't want to look at it that way. But uh, yeah, so it's complicated, but nobody gets off the hook. No state gets off the hook in any of this. No city gets off the hook. Uh, Even when you come to race violence and race massacres, you know, people, they're in denial, you know, so we don't allow that denialism.
2: (laughs) I think, you know, Part of it is denial and part of it is is ignorance, whether willful Mm -hmm. or not. And um, one of the problems in the country, I've talked about this a lot, is is that there is no, you you mentioned reckoning. There is no reckoning. There's no Uh -uh. atonement. There's no attempt ever to go back and review what we did and, um, you know, try to redress the situation and learn from it. And and, and it somehow make atonement for, for the horrible things that we've done. You know, in in a society, I think you can draw even just politically, you can draw a through line from uh, Reconstruction where it was, you know, once Lincoln was was killed, you know, Johnson said, okay, let's just hurry this along. Everything's fine now. Move it. You know, and and then, you know, Southern states used the, the 13th Amendment and created these laws and effectively just, you know, the racism, it wasn't slavery anymore, but it was still racism And then stuff just got baked into the, uh, you know, to the laws everywhere. I mean, in New York City, you could not buy an apartment if you were black unless it was in Harlem or in Bed-Stuy until fairly recently, I think in my lifetime, you know, Um, and these are things that most people don't know anything about because there has not been, as you said, this national federal level overreaching attempt um, for all of us to come together and say, holy shit, this thing happened. It was terrible. You know, nobody's going to it's not a blame game. And I think a lot of a lot of the uh, the people that that take uh, that are scared of this are, are afraid that people are going to blame them for being white or whatever. But it's not about that. It's about knowledge. It's about let's figure out what happened. Let's make sure that that, you know, that we can uh, atone for it if it's at all possible. And certainly the, the more knowledge we have about it, the less likely that it is to happen again. The other thing I wanted to, to say, just you mentioned this earlier, is is sexism and, and, and misogyny and stuff like that. And that's something that, you know, we, we still haven't had the big, uh, you know, global reach about that. That That's I, I've said this before on the podcast, too. We we've had the we had the Black Lives Matter protests, which were fantastic. We're, you know, we haven't had the Women's Lives Matter protests. That's something that that people don't think about, I think. And. I'd like to see something like that happen too, where we go back and say, you know, women could only vote in this country for a hundred years. That's like nothing. Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of institutionalized sexism, just like there's institutionalized racism and it all contributes to how society is now. So the work that you guys are doing um, at the free press, I think is really, really vital to, you know, to, to hipping people to what happened in the history of the things. And, um, you know, and, I, I believe maybe naively that most people are inherently good people and some of them just don't know any better. And if they're taught these things, you know, society will improve. So any, anything that helps that I'm, I'm off.
4: Well, wow. So much there. Um, one thing, <laughs> I, well, one thing I want to not get past there, which you came back to is what is true is that people in Mississippi were especially once you get beyond the the major planters and then ultimately Confederate officers and all of those people who control all this and frankly still do in, in their own way uh, from the powerful. I mean, we were American. I mean, it's it's these, you know, my people, some of whom own slaves, not huge slave owners, but this surprised me, you know, because right. I was one of those Mississippians who was, we were too poor to own slaves. Yeah, later, but um, You know, uh, people followed that path and, you know, and so, and it was the path of riches and, and, you know, it was the American dream at that point for my family to go South and try to work their way up to owning people. And there were a lot of people, so they had free labor. And so there was a lot, there were a lot of people who did that. So my point is, this was a human thing and what has ended up happening in the South um, and other places is that people don't know the history. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I talk to who don't know that there were these horrific race massacres in places like Omaha or, you know, that one, you, you know, if you've read Caste, there's a lot of uh, detail in there. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that people, you're right that people are ignorant about our history because it's not taught. And I do think, uh, or it's not, the powerful don't want us to teach it. Right, And that's the same with misogyny because it changes the dynamic. I mean, it's what we're seeing with this, all the freak out over 1619 project. Um, It's what we're, you know, and then this 1776, we gotta be proud of everything. No, we don't actually. What we can be proud of is that if we continue, continue building a truly free for all um, democracy, uh, that you know that's what we can be proud of and as you say that is about women too I mean su- look the suffrage movement it was great but it was racist I oh, mean yeah. you know they pushed Ida to be well she they, they didn't even want her at the front of the parade in New York and then she put herself up there anyway which I love um, that's the kind of spirit that I uh, appreciate um, and she pushed herself to the front but you know that's That's just that was true everywhere. I mean, here in Mississippi, you know, there were some former Confederate generals, uh, including the he was a lieutenant general, but the man that, you know, my alma mater Mississippi State honors, who he was for women's suffrage. And you talk about Reconstruction because they wanted more white people voting. And so there were people who wanted it for that reason. And so there were, it's all complicated, right? And then those systems, those misogyny and sexism systems, you know, they've permeated media forever. Sure. I mean, I'm, throughout my career, so many stories, and we have not fully faced it. We are going through an attempt at reckoning now, you know, and putting, you know, having more women in leadership roles. But one of the dirty little secrets that most women don't know until they take the leadership role is there's there's a whole new level of sexism waiting there and this isn't from the right this is from ev- across the board yeah and it's from women and so you kind of get into this place where women are expected to be these nurturers no matter what you do and you know there's studies that say you're damned if you do and damned if you don't you know they don't respect you you do you become the nurturer but if you don't they hate you and so it's these things that we that keep women down, or they push them out of journalism. I mean, part of the reason that I do my own thing is the sexism that I horrible sexism that I I ran into in various ways, and still do in journalistic circles, and and from bosses or from colleagues, um, especially if you if you're willing to speak up. I mean, people just they're going to try to punish the woman. That's just true. It doesn't matter if it's true or false, you know, so you have to have such a tough skin and in a state like Mississippi where there's so much misogyny still in the DNA <laughs> mm-hmm. hasn't worked out yet. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it, you're right on that. I mean, it's, it, 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 we've got to face it. And part of the reason that we are a women founded and run, our board of directors has nine people, eight of them are women. And we are unapologetic about that. Um, and we do things differently. Now we're not a women's publication. We're not like the 19th, you know, which is great. Um, they, we started at the same time as pandemic started. Uh, they're national, we're technically local, although we have a lot of national um, visibility and readers, yeah. um, but we are not, we do not, we are not for women. We are for everybody. And, and we believe, not criticizing that. I think that's great. But, but that what they're doing, we believe that women run media will be very good for everybody, you know, and our Kimberly and I, you know, we work together. She's black. I'm white. We run this In a very inclusive way, we don't have to wring our hands every six months because we didn't interview enough people that weren't white men because we just don't do it that way, right? It's not our. It's not one of those things that we have to worry about. And then we have white male reporters as well as, uh, you know, we have a black woman reporter. We actually have a black man reporter coming in. But my point is, that's fine. We 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 want good male reporters, you know, Ashton Pittman. Yeah, he's great. He's a white male reporter. You know, he's also a married gay man in Mississippi and but he comes from a he comes from a uh, evangelical background and went to a seg academy for a while. So he understands Mississippi and and lives in South Mississippi, you know. So what I'm saying is that that's the kind of changes that I want to see is is really at the heart of things. It's not a it's not it's not window dressing right? It's different kinds of decision-making. We don't do horse race political coverage because we're not this, like, into this testosterone-soaked, as I would call it, (laughs) uh, obsession with party. Yeah, You know, I know too much about history and what's going on with Republicans and Democrats for 200 years, you know, ever since the, what, Democrat-Republican party. I, I mean, you know, it's like it changes. So we're focused on people, and I think that, and, and their issues. And I think that that's women, not all women, but I think women leaders can help ensure that we keep that focus um, on, on what matters to everyday lives. Part of the reason we did such great COVID r- reporting, especially this, this the, you know, in this fourth wave with the schools, mm-hmm. is because we bothered to really focus on what's going on with women and children and we don't let up on that. And I think we are leading, and I think some other people have kind of followed in the state after we started doing that, but they weren't paying attention to those things as much as we were. We made it a really big deal that a little black girl in um, in Smith County died, you know, from COVID, because that really mattered, so.
2: I think, you know, what you're saying is super important because It is the the way that things are covered and what what is covered, what they choose to cover and what they don't choose to cover is just, you know, it's limited by the people in the room at the meeting, at the news meeting and what they think is important. So, like, um, I remember there was a story when I worked at at AP where um, this was a story circulating Kurt Cobain died, uh, which was a big deal to anybody at that time under the age of like 25. And the Seattle news editor called the general desk and said, Kurt Cobain died. You got to run this on the A-Wire. And whoever was working the general desk was some old fuddy-duddy who had no idea who Kurt Cobain was. And the Seattle person had to scream and yell for a while to get him to put it on the A-Wire. So that's a stupid example, but it's the same thing. Like, we're all limited by our own experiences. So the more diverse experiences you can have in a room, you know, uh, certainly a newsroom, the better, I think, because you know who knows what's it. You guys have done really great COVID coverage. I think Is it, that Intervectin story about the horse, you know, the horse and the cow thing. I'm sure I read that from uh, Ashton Pittman wrote that story. That that was the first time I saw it, and then it was everywhere after that. So,
4: well, he, you're absolutely right. He led on that. Um, he uh, and then Maddow jumped on it mm-hmm. uh, because and, you know, and she's she's been a fan of our work. Dating back to the Jackson Free Press. In fact, her—I <laughs> don't know if I ever say this out loud—but one of her uh, longtime producers, Laura Conway, was my editor at the Village Voice at one point. And so we, you know, we've all known—we've known each other for a while. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of belief in women, <laughs> uh, yeah. women run journalism in these circles. But um, th- I wanted to give you back an example of what you were saying—a um, story because. Um, Because I would also say, yes, it's about more than diverse newsrooms, though, and diverse perspectives in the newsrooms. It's about uh, and then I'll give you my example. It's about white people. Studying and listening and training, you know, I had three years of training through uh, I was a W.K. Kellogg leadership fellow and a lot of what I did, you know, I was in the minority and I did a whole lot of listening and training in um, different structural, institutional, systemic racism, systemic thinking, all of those kinds of things that kind of built up built me to the point where I think I could do MFP. But my story, when I applied for Columbia, um, it was kind of a lark. Uh, so, but I was I was in Colorado at that moment. But anyway, that doesn't matter. I was talking to a professor there. I visited, and I got together with this professor that somebody had recommended to me, a white man, not going to say who it was. I don't think he's still there. I don't think. Um, And we were having a conversation. Oh, I know what it was. I had applied already. And at the time, and I don't know if they still do this, they did a, 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 uh, current events test. Okay. And it was actually, I think it was, maybe it was fill in the blank. It must've been fill in the blank, but it was, so they're trying to make sure that you know what's going on in the world. Okay, that's fine. Whatever. It was 30 questions about newsmakers. One question, the answer was a woman and it was Toni Morrison. So it kind of hit a couple Mm, bases. Yeah. That's fine. So when I met with this professor, we were talking about Columbia and such, and I told him that. I said, you know... You know, here I am, a forty-year-old woman, just saying what I think, right? And oh, almost forty. And I told him about that, and I said, "How is it that in thirty questions about newsmakers, that it's mostly about white men, and there was one woman as the answer?" And his his answer to me was, um, "Because they there weren't many women." making news last year (laughs) and i kind of just sat there and looked at him because if you can't see the logical circle that illogical circle that you got yourself caught in here you know the horse around the track here then i'm not sure how i can help you so that was that and you know in my experience i did columbia over two years um and my experiences and I've, I've you know, I'm the I, I was I got the alumni or one of the alumni awards this year which shocked the shit out of me. But uh, so, you know, I feel like I can say things, but I would call it half good experience and half bad experience. Yeah. And a lot of the bad experience. I mean, I had some of the shit that people said to me because I was a white woman from the South. And I'm talking professors, white male professors who were belittling. And, you know, just assuming that the, they're not talking about things like you are, these particular ones. And, you know, I learned the most there from Manny Marable because I was doing a, a mid-career thing and found myself over in, in the Black Studies Institute and, um, you know, and did some, I was able to do things outside the journalism school. I learned a lot about my process and making writing better, legal, you know, there was some good stuff I learned. But some of that bullshit misogyny and that I ran into particularly, or even just regional bigotry, um, really opened my eyes about the media. Um, because this is where they were being taught in this kind of arrogance about being at Columbia and all of that. I mean, I hated it. And I, you know, I had a woman advisor who suggested that I come back to Mississippi to do my master's project in Mississippi. And I'd never been a journalist here. And that and the fact that I went to therapy to deal with some of the bullshit misogyny at Columbia uh, and in therapy, we talked about Mississippi a lot and that's what sent me home to Mississippi, which I'm very grateful. No, I, I'm more open about that now. I didn't used to talk about it as much, but I'm very grateful that all it ultimately i'm i'm you know i'm i'm just buddhist enough to say okay all of it was part of the plan but um or part of the you know the 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 path um but it it was it those parts were awful i mean because really because it was another it was like that dj thing yeah where i'm i'm in the north i'm thinking all that bullshit racism and sexism is behind me and my eyes were like eyes wide open. Right. And then I'm at Columbia and learning those and seeing those things happen in front of me. And, and at the time there were very few black students there and I was questioning some of that, you know, and it, well, I can't afford it. Well, I get it, but you know, let's figure it out. Um, and, uh, not an amazing Friend there, Linnell Hancock, you know, who really helped me get through a lot of this. But so what is true is that I learned from every one of those experiences, because I do choose to learn from negative experiences. That's part of my ethos. But, um, you know, so that's what I would say to people. And, and if you went, if you're somebody who studied or became a journalist through this, this this old school, I mean, I don't even like national versus local journalism labels yeah. anymore. Because it's like, what does that even mean? You know, in the past it's meant national journalists and so they can get away with anything they want and they can use your stories and not give you credit. I mean, that's yeah. what we local journalists think of. But, you know, what I would say to anybody working in media that if, you, if you're in it for anything more than the money and the prestige, um figure this stuff out you know seek out training visit other places study the history because you know you, people do need to be part of the solution and you know i'm self taught in all of the history all of the things because i'm that's what i care about i want to understand why things are the way they are we can't change the systems if we don't understand why the systems exist
2: you know that's a good point
1: Season 2 of Swing Left's How
4: We Win is here.
1: All over the country, people like you stepped up to help hold the House, win control of the Senate and put Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House. Now we have an incredible opportunity and responsibility to wield our people power to fight for our democracy. Trump may be gone, but the GOP is still clearly the party of Trumpism we must stay engaged to make sure we hold on to power and expand our majorities.
0: But how do we do that in the face of historic attacks on voting rights, conspiracy theories that defile the truth, and systemic racism at the roots of our institutions?
1: Season one brought you answers and tools to make a difference from guests such as Speaker Nancy Pelosi, DeRay McKesson, actor Billy Eichner, Stacey Abrams, Michael Moore, Katherine Hahn, Karen Bass, and many more. Season two, we're going even deeper into the issues that matter the most. And of course, what you can do about it. We don't agonize, we organize. And we've got a lot of work to do. Subscribe right now on Apple and everywhere you get your pods for insight, action, and your reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And this is season two of How We Win.
2: You talked about it before, like the loop that 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 bad professor had in in his brain about how it opens. Like they do it on the on the I never watch the news on TV unless it's like an election night or 9-11 or something like that. But but but, uh, you know, they people complain about it on Twitter all the time. I'm watching CNN and this person's on, I'm turning it off. And it's like, then turn it off and leave it off. Why are you, Yeah. you know, why is Michael Moore on? Why is a guy like that? Why well, are you recycling these old retread people that don't have anything new to offer that are not representative of anything other than he's a guy that people kind of vaguely, uh, you know, understand. Even like last night, my friend was watching, um, last night i say right now it's 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 september 15th we this won't run for a little while but um was the california recall so my friend was actually had cnn on and was complaining like what and bernie sanders is on talking about the california thing and said why is bernie sanders there what does he have to do with that he's not from california he's never lived in california he's not even a member of the democratic party so why is he on tv because he's just yet another familiar face that they you know, that they they think people want to see. And, and in a sense, they're training us to want to see rather mm-hmm. than um, just putting somebody on because they're interesting or good and letting it and not worrying so much about the clicks and the ratings and, uh, you know, and, and being patient and letting the good the good work come out, which is what happened with Rachel Maddow, by the way, right? She, she kind of started out and then took that job and then everyone was like, wow, she's really great. Let's watch her. Um,
4: well, she, well, she's about the only... And I don't watch her regularly. I mean, yeah. she, you know, cause I don't watch that much TV, um, but she's smart. I mean, that's the yeah, thing she's she using and her producers as I know very well are smart and they're paying attention to everything going on in the country. One of the things I really appreciate about Rachel is uh, that other people may not ever notice is that she never belittles the state of Mississippi. She will talk about our leaders and, you know, and what's going on here, but she always says the great state of Mississippi or she always, it's like she knows that there are people in Mississippi. uh, There are good people here working hard to overcome the systems. And what I always say about Mississippi is that Mississippi is just the most ingrained microcosm which has a whole lot to do with being the richest from from slavery, if people would actually pay attention, you know, And, and what happened as a result of that. And where the Mississippi River is, all of that has a whole lot to do with right. with, with um, you know the realities of Mississippi today. And um, so, I, you know, I I really appreciate that about Rachel. You know, she's smart. Now, you, then you get a, and it's kind of what you're talking about. It's like you get a situation where you know I think it was Andy Lack when he was at NBC hired what's her name from Fox. Uh, uh, oh yeah, uh,
2: Megan. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I, And then they're all surprised that she says offensive things on race. It's like you hired her because you want that crowd. You just don't want it to go a little bit too far, you know, but here's the thing. That was a really bad decision. It cost them a lot of money, but that's the kind of thing we ought to be able to see before we do it. Yes. You know, we ought anybody who's a media leader. I don't care what level you're on. Ought to be able to say, that's not worth it, you know. We're, but that's this, and you probably see us talk about beyond partisanship, which is a phrase that I kind of started using. And then I'm always whining <laughs> and railing against horse race politics. But it's that it's the horse race of all this punditry, you know, yeah. that you've got to have these extremes yelling at each other. And if if those folks can't see especially on the national high levels that drive so much of the attention Trump, like I fully believe Trump is going to be president. I'm from Mississippi. And, and when he won the New York primary, you know, I turned to Todd and I said, he's going to be president. He just won the New York primary, Republican primary. It's like, that says a whole lot, you add it up. So it's kind of like if people were thinking about, you know, how much we're going to, We're going to use him for fun, and we're going to get all these ratings. Right. We're not going to think about that. This could actually work because they don't know enough. They don't understand enough about the country and this level of division that they helped put in place with this kind of two-sided. I don't even like. I mean, you know, I don't even like part. I've said that I don't like parties, but I don't like, uh, you know, the red, blue, this or that, false equivalency, and. So what I think part of what, I'm not sure people can always know what they like about what we do at the Mississippi Free Press. I mean, I, I, I'm not being belittling there because I think a lot of it's built in, but one of the things we, we just reject that, he said, she said thing. Now, what that means is that we piss off Democrats and, and we have since the Jackson Free Press launched 19 years ago, because they want to think that we're progressive or liberal or whatever the label of the day is. I don't like labels. Um, and they want to think that, and then, you know, we come out with a story about, you know, the democratic, democratic, democratic attorney general who's running for governor and how awful he is on the death penalty. And, and, you know, we don't care, you know, he'll put a black mayor of Jackson in prison or in jail and on trial. And so it just doesn't matter, you know, but we have to reject that frame. And that's kind of our argument. You know, we're letting pow- powerful people divide us into two and te- into two parts and tell us where the acceptable middle is. And that's not okay. And they there. It's driven by white men, you know, yep. um, and, and it's just not okay. You know, and I just, we reject it.
2: It's driven by white men and it's driven by, very few white men. That's the other problem is that the, the, you know, the media outlets, especially this TV stations are, are run owned and operated by these people. And, I think with guys holders. like Lack and certainly with Jeff Zucker at CNN, they knew what they yeah. were doing with Trump. I mean, that that, that they, they knew they knew exactly what they were doing. It, it wasn't about clicks. It was about it was very very mendacious and um you know and we're all paying the price for that. Um you know again not to be party this or that because I I I've been arguing this for a long time. Like I I wrote a book about. the the russia trump stuff in in 2018 Mm -hmm. this has nothing to do with political parties it's not because trump is a republican because he's really not he's he's, Uh -uh. trump is a trump you know he just happened to that was the party that he was able to co-opt and 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 uh you know like a um you know in a science fiction movie or something where he assumes the you know he takes over the body of the party and it's wandering around like a zombie like it's possessed i mean that's that's what happened to that political party for the most part i mean there's obviously some exceptions so it's not about at this point, it's not politic. It's not partisan. It's are you for mm-hmm. democracy or not? And I think that mm-hmm. you know journalism in general is almost inherently pro-democratic in d- small d democrat. You know, small d yeah, yeah. democracy democratic right. and, uh, and and has to be because if 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 we're a tyranny, if we're uh, an autocratic state, then you know, the first thing that goes is is the free press. I mean, the fr- M- right. Mussolini literally went to the presses and destroyed them by hand. The actual yeah, right. Press. Right, right, so, um, right,
4: right, yeah. right, and the misogyny in that—it's like yes. uh, you know—and I, I didn't start out. I mean, I wrote a column several years back, you know, critiquing the Clintons. I'm not a big Clinton night, you know, um, and but the misogyny, yes, against Hillary Clinton that still continues. Whatever that Economist tweet was that uh, she was on to something back a few, you know, on to something. Maybe she just knew what she was talking about about. The, the women being important in the world, you know, that happened like in the last week or two, but you know, the whole, you know, I wrote a, a piece in Dame magazine. Um, oh, I love Dame About, about, uh, did you see that piece? And it was no, kind of focused on, it, it, take a look at it. It was focused on, uh, you know, Ronan's book and kind of Andy Lack, uh, you know, cause Andy Lack also has a presence in Mississippi. So that's an interest for us, but, um, but the, uh, but, this talk that he gave after the election at Ole Miss or the University of Mississippi, as I prefer to call it, um, with uh, I think John Meacham to you know an audience of mostly white people basically saying that they, they did nothing wrong in the media with Trump. And then it was all about Clint- Hillary Clinton's being unlikable across the country. Oh God. Have we learned nothing? Do you see what I mean? It's like, yeah. really? You know, it's like, but but nobody made a big deal out of that other than, you know, I wrote about it for Dame and gave some of his uh, some of his track record on some of these things. But that's just misogyny.
3: Yeah,
4: that part is like unlikable. That's just pure and simple. And and so it kind of goes back to that professor at Columbia. Yeah, that's misogyny, too. You are sexism. You don't know that i i can tell because you're caught in the loop but
2: yeah well wait when did when did he do that was after the that was after 2016 right this is fairly recent that lack did this or
4: no he did it um it would have been i think it was early so 2000 trump took the office in 2016
2: Yeah. yeah
4: yeah yeah so i think it was soon after he took office okay
2: that's what yeah so not only is is he repeating a narrative; the narrative was proven, like de- demonstrably false. Like Hillary got the second most at that time, the second most votes of anyone ever, ever. So I say
4: that in the Dame piece.
2: Yeah, it's like, like how it's, is that unlikable? What is it? What are you talk? What are you talking about?
4: What it yeah. see? What I would tell you say there though, and this is like one of the dangers. He's this national media figure, or kind of was. You know, he's not as much anymore. But coming down. To Oxford, Mississippi, talking to a fairly conservative white audience. It might be some Democrats, but you get my point. Mm-hmm. And they're all laughing about it. They kind of say it in joking ways. Um, even some of what John Meacham said, I would, you know, um, you know, I kind of expect better than that out of a historian. And and they're talking to this audience, and that's and he's being flippant about it. By then. And it, and he had already had all this criticism about how NBC gave the open mic to Trump and you know, that, that crazy Lauer, uh, whatever that was, wasn't the debate, but the way he questioned Clinton and all those other things that lack was part of. And and so I, yeah, I wrote about all of that in the Dame piece uh, because it's just, but here's the thing and this is what I wrote about in there. It, it's, it's systemic. Yeah. Like, you know, like if you went back and saw, you know, I put some historic stuff in there um, about how he had kind of gotten called out in the media back in 20 years ago or something about how he was talking about women. They didn't have executive uh, women, executive producers because they didn't want to work that hard and that kind of language. And so you get those and, it, you know, it's ultimately what Ronan Farrow was doing, too, was showing the systemic problems, you know, and how mm-hmm. it's handed down. And so that's what my piece in Dame was about. But, but, But you said it earlier. We don't think enough about systemic sexism. Yeah. You know, we don't think enough about systemic racism, but at least we're starting to have that conversation. But we have to be willing to go backward and look at, so when we talk about systemic reporting, that's what we're talking about is going back into the past and looking at the, at the trends or looking at the, the, the steps forward and how this led to this led to this. Right. And so, you know, and, and at some point, if people understand that well enough, they know that it's not just a bad apple they're dealing with. They're dealing with a whole bunch of bad apples hiring other bad apples and, and making it okay to do these things because that's part of the culture, whether it's the actual assault or harassment, or whether it's just this kind these attitudes, these sexist misogynist attitudes that very often, you know, some of the stuff I deal with, I mean, I've dealt with it all on some level from attempts to sleep with me on a job interview where I flew across the country to, to, yeah, it was awful. Um, to, um, people getting mad at me now because i do some sort of media critique out loud and then men calling other uh, male advisory board members to tell on me mm-hmm. <laughs> or at the jackson free press where I, you know my partner was todd uh, my my life partner too you know we were co-founders he's a publisher i'm the editor men would write him and tell him to make me stop and he would say, I can't do that. You know, you, why don't you get in touch with her? But, but my point in saying that is that that's what it still is happening.
1: Yeah. Is
4: that it's this behind, it's this belittling kind of like Lack was doing of Hillary Clinton being unlikable across the country regardless of how many votes she got. And, it, and it's this, you know, belittling of women, you know, and, and uh, making it equal to, and I've dealt with this for 20 years at least in Mississippi, personal, horrible personal attacks coming from men because I say something that is about critique of media or something serious, right? Right. And then people and across the political spectrum will say, oh, well, you're having a Twitter beef with so-and-so, or you're in a battle there's a war between this person and this person. And I'm like, how are these two things equal? Yeah. You know, I'm just being an intelligent woman over here. Most of the time, I'm not saying I don't get pissy here and there, but, you know, with especially pissy back to this, but it's like, I'm, I'm saying something that I believe is important to the future of my state. Yeah. And these people are going after the size of my butt or something. And <laughs> here I am. It's seriously, that's happened. <laughs> Here I am in a Twitter beef, or I'm in a war because of the way they are responding to me in a misogynistic way. And we, we saw that just play out on a national stage with Hillary Clinton, you know, yeah. just in every possible way and media putting unconfirmed, you know, stuff from uh, WikiLeaks and all these other things out there just slamming them out there um, and it, it just, I don't know, none of that was, it may be national media, but none of that was journalism that I would want any of my folks to emulate.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's gross, Um, all all of that. (laughs) You know, in, in a word um oh, i love that it makes me shudder really
4: i know it makes me shudder too but you know you just have to keep going through it i guess yeah. um yeah.
2: oh i know what i was gonna say that okay you say twitter beef you know that's also it goes back to what you're saying before about the horse race and and the mm-hmm. suggestion that that's a very manly posturing and a way to frame it you know like well you know who's gonna uh, who's who's ahead today and who's this and oh they're at they're a beef and you know it's but it's it's ultimately not about anything to even say that it's it it, it uh-uh. not only is it i don't know it it, it dumbs down everything yeah and makes the discourse into this you know f- you're flinging poo at each other or something which is not what you're trying to do it's only what one side is trying to do so um, that's
4: exactly it it's like if you're gonna this is my thing if i'm gonna criticize particularly media and i do that because i believe we should you know and i believe we should we should because who else is gonna do it? We have to hold media to a higher standard, including ourselves, right? And so if I'm if I'm saying, you know, if I'm saying those things and then you throw poo at me, these are not equal things. No, they're not. You know, and that's and that's the you know, but that's still this whole false equivalency frame. That, that they teach, I guess, caught. at Columbia
2: Journalism School, apparently, from that professor. Well, you they know, certainly did yeah.
4: when uh, when I was there, you know, and and I, they probably teach it. Well, I know some of them do at the University of Mississippi. Um, you know, we've gone through some things with them due to some of our reporting. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's it, it it's not good. But what I always tell people is that, look, I've had everything thrown at me. And so and I love the new ones who show up. And they think that they, they're they gonna throw a little thing on Twitter and then all of a sudden I'm gonna go running for the hills. And it's just like people, you know, I've dealt with this for 20 years in the state of Mississippi and I've had everything comes at me. And so maybe you don't know that, especially now that we're doing a statewide publication instead of the, you know, the capital city publication. Right. So I have to kind of teach a whole new, new crop of people that I'm not just going to tuck tail and run.
2: Yeah. I think you put the emphasis in the wrong place. Yeah, in that sentence, you said I, I've had you know lots of people throw things at me in the state of Mississippi. It should be I've had lots of things thrown at me in the state of Mississippi. Like <laughs> yeah. If you can handle that, man, you can handle you know you can handle some dumbass on Twitter from the Jersey suburbs or whatever. Um, I
4: often say to look, I'm a new, I'm a woman newspaper editor who tells the truth in the state of Mississippi. Just just you know I've heard it all, you right. know, so.
2: Um, I got, I have one more thing I want to ask you. And um, then I want to, I want you to talk about the, 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 um, the free press, the project that you're doing Okay. and then talk about, you know, where we can find you and how, um, yep. you know, if people want to donate or, 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 or that kind of thing. And that's, I've written about Tate Reeves before I, this guy, I don't understand him. And again, I don't want it. I don't want it to be political. Cause I don't think it, it, I think it's just as, as possible for a Democrat to be loopy with the vaccines and stuff, but I, I don't understand how a guy can come in on this huge pro-life sort of platform. At least that's how it reads from where I sit. He, he likes to equate himself with quote unquote pro-life. He, he turns down the, the, the Medicare, the Medicaid uh, money from the government. Um, the, the rank in, in um, all of these things is super low. The COVID rank, the COVID numbers are, are terrible and I think you had a thing on your on on uh, the Free Press today that the death rate is the highest that passed New Jersey this week in Mississippi, and Reeves is a guy who was right after Abbott at the same time that said, "No, we're not going to have masks. We're not. We're going to open up. We're going to do all these things," even though if you look at his Instagram page, his his daughter is his little girls are there wearing masks, and they have yeah. signs up on their door in cute handwriting saying "Must have masks to enter" and stuff like that. Um, I don't know what my question is, but do people really take this? Like, how can people take this guy seriously when he's clearly a hypocrite? I don't know. I'm just I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm not even trying to be funny. I just.
4: Well, you know, what I would say to that is one thing I think we should clarify, at least he didn't make it illegal for any school districts to do mask mandates. That's, That's the best thing I can say even though he, from the very beginning, even last year has, you know, we put a lot of pressure on um, and some other media um, to, uh, to have some statewide mandates last year, it took a lot. And so, so I wanted to just make that clear that he's not exactly the same as Abbott, even though I think he's competing for that. What I would say is that, you know, it's almost to me it's almost not about Reeves. It's about how somebody like that kind of routinely uh, on some level or another uh, becomes our leaders. I mean, it's just in, in some ways it's, he's no Trump in the sense. I mean, I think he wants to be, but, yeah, but, but it's the same way that a Trump becomes, um, becomes a leader. Right. Uh, The real answer is in, is in history. It's in, You know, what the Republican Party, and I don't say this partisan wise, this history, what uh, the Republican Party decided to become uh, by and after the Civil Rights Movement, which was to go after white, conservative, racist voters. Now, they don't, none of them think they're racist, but, you know, the the things they said, they're fine being in a party with, you know, 90.90. 9.9%, whatever, you know, white people. Um, So it's, it's about, you know, it's about primary races. I mean, Reeves is worried is wants to win the primary and the primary, you know, so that he doesn't, because his biggest threat would would probably be another Republican because he's kind of like Phil Bryant before him. I've heard very people, very few people Republican or Democratic say they like him. Mm -hmm. So it's not about being liked, it's about playing to a fairly small number of people who vote and who want to push an ideology, you know, it's the kind of, I'm going to be writing more about this soon, but it's the ideology that the Citizens Council really embraced, not just the overtly racist part, but the using the small government, the governments coming after you, socialism, communism, um, they're using all of those things and they're going to take over and control you. I had a very intelligent re- conversation for a guardian piece with a woman uh, who used to be the head of the Republican party here, uh, who is still a Republican, but not, <laughs> not a Tate Reeves Republican.
3: Okay.
4: Um, who said that people, people are so brainwashed into believing that communism is going to take over that they will believe. And I think that's, nationally people don't take this quite seriously enough that these memes are there they yeah. are so so the freedom mean that the government is not going to we're not going to let the government force vaccines on you we're going to sue them not even seeing the irony in any of this that one government suing the other anyway but we're going to try to stop them from doing that the point is not stopping them from doing that. He's been vaccinated. His whole family's been vaccinated. His daughters, at least one of them, had COVID. It's not about uh, that. It's about getting to those voters who stay with them out of fear mm. of of something that many of them don't quite understand. And yeah. it's this. So. The, but the big thing I wanna say there is that this kind of media paradigm that we talk about, that we've talked about here, plays into that.
3: Absolutely. Because
4: it's this or that. In our, in our last governor's election, we had, we had three Republicans running. One of them was, the, was a Republican who was the more moderate Republican son of a former Republican governor who had more gravitas than Reeves would ever think about having, clearly more, at least outwardly intelligent, um, all these other things, supported Medicaid reform, as he called it, which would be an expansion. So did the crazy right-wing one, Robert Foster, who's, you know, uh, you know and, but the media never, they, they, they never framed it in such a way where they focused on the issues, I say the media, other than us. I mean, and yeah. I, at the time I just had Jackson Free Press. Um, they, they never covered that right. In fact, the day after a Republican debate where it, it was, I, those three men I think were in the Republic, but I know the two main ones that I'm talking about. One of the statewide headlines was that the debate was all about who was more conservative and that was the frame was who was more conservative so this is what i'm interested in in these die cuz we're going to keep getting ridiculous people elected in the state of mississippi whatever party they are until we figure out some of these things right. and i and you know and i'm in the media so that's what i believe in working with because that's what i know something about we we can't we can't just follow these strategists around you know, and and Democrats here, you know, they always they run to be who's to get part of that cr- crazy little white conservative group. You know, so there are no options. Right. And so either people leave or they don't vote or the ones who do vote are frustrated because and then there are just no options. I mean, I'm I liked Bill Waller, the moderate Republican I thought he would be at least as good a governor as Jim Hood, who was the Democrat. And I can't tell you because of Jim Hood's record on criminal justice and death penalty. I mean, keeping a woman in prison that our reporting finally got out supported the death penalty. Um, I can't tell you who I'd have voted for. Yeah. In the general election, I mean, I suspect and I've I've been known to vote occasionally for a Republican in the state um, who. And that's saying something in this state, but you know. Right, right, sure. you know, And so um, I might've voted for Bill Waller. And, and so just the fact that he never had a chance because of the way the media frames it and because, and because of the way the, the, and that allows the Republican party in the state to just, people should know better to just go off a deep end in the way that they run these campaigns and then the horse race you know of it is what is what's covered i mean right. in a way that's exactly what happened to trump
3: yeah you know, absolutely with,
4: with misogyny thrown in to help
3: mm-hmm. but i don't
4: know if he'd have succeeded if she'd have been a man probably wouldn't have. but uh, yeah so that's what i would say i mean i could go on and on about the crazy
2: no that's a, that's K. interesting Reed. and that's that moves around from place to place but it, it does give us give us uh, a place to land because we are running out of time, and I want to mm-hmm. get to um, talk a little bit about this this project that you're doing, going into the, the systemic reporting in Mississippi, and then, um, you know, let people know how they can support uh, the Mississippi Free Press, because I think, you know, I'm like I'm happy I
4: said, to do that. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the work you're doing is
2: really valuable, I think, as, yeah. as, as I yeah, think yeah, I've yeah. made clear, yeah.
4: <laughs> well, so what, what we had to figure out, and we have these really cool maps that you've seen, but what we had to figure out is if we were gonna be a statewide nonprofit, which was a dream of mine for, the, for a long time. And by the way, we have the very same name as a, a wonderful civil rights era newspaper that was done by a multiracial group and Maker Evers was one of them. And his daughter is on our advisory board. Oh wow, gave her, okay. Gave her blessing before I used the name. Um, if we were gonna cover the whole state, that's hard. We have 82 counties. We don't have the resources to be in every city council meeting and every you know, county supervisors meeting. All of that. And so one, as I was thinking over the years about how if we ever got to fulfill my dream of having a statewide publication, how we would do that. And it was really these this training and things that I, t- I told you about, particularly in, in uh, systemic racism, structural racism, systemic thinking, that kind of got me to this point. So we call it systemic reporting. And what we mean by that, ultimately, systemic, I'm also a solutions journalism fan, but I, I don't think that the most effective solutions journalism is going and spending your time finding solutions that might work for what I like to think of as symptoms. And so mm-hmm. what, I, what I mean by that is I think we have to dig all the way into the roots in public education, in criminal justice systems uh, or violence, violence reduction, Ed, uh, I said, education, healthcare, to kind of understand why the inequities are there, because I'm enough of a Mississippian and dealt with enough of them over the years to know that if people don't have the knowledge about how, you know, like a project we're working on now not to be county. Um, how the clan and other. White supremacist groups that most people don't even know existed here because they don't know their own history, um, shut down all black schools in that area, because the Klan focused on black schools was one of their things. Mm. So, so that black people, and I bet you a lot of people don't know that, so that black people don't get didn't get any kind of education, just like they focused on the political system and. Reconstruction, so they would shut down. They focused on doctors who were supporting elections. So what I'm saying is that the history piece of it is to show people through the years what the attempts have been to keep black children from getting a good education, like in Knoxby County. That's one that we're about to start publishing. So so we're, we're, we're doing, we have a, like on this one project, we have a team of black women journalists who are looking at why uh, COVID-19 hit black women and their families in the early months harder than any other group, including black men, which wasn't all the case in all states um, in that particular thing. And so we're looking at that. We're zooming in on education. We're zooming in on health care. We're zooming in on uh, public safety, actually, which I think will surprise people. But I think it'll make sense when they see it. And then we're picking counties in different parts of the state. And so we're to zoom in. So then we do that reporting, we show people what the causes and the symptoms of those inequities are, how it was passed down, what the effects are today with data and storytelling, and then ultimately the solutions journalism piece comes in. So in, in Knoxville County, one of them is, okay, what are the solutions to the, broad, to the lack of broadband that basically shut down education? In Noxube County when COVID hit? What's the solution to the mental health and trauma problems um, that, you know, that? So, so my point is there's nothing really partisan about any of that because nobody has done a good job with this ultimately. I'm not saying certain people haven't tried. So, through that, we're telling those stories. And so, we have at this point, you've seen it, we have 14 focus projects that we hope to do in the next two years. That are going in deep into one area or another. Like we, one is a public education s- solutions lab, but it's to do this. We're picking counties to show their resegregation, to show all these other things, the economic impact on the, you know, on this crumbling state. Of I just see it, you know, segregation around the state has just broken the state. And um, when I drive around the state, I see it. And so that's systemic. It has history pieces, it has data pieces, it has comparisons, but then ultimately by by focusing on at least three counties in each project more as we can, um, ultimately we are comparing and contrasting. And then those counties, the state tends to be very sectional, those counties can see what other counties are doing. And then it starts hopefully, because we also call it networking Mississippi, in addition to mapping Mississippi, hopefully it means that people are drawing more connections and efficacy through learning what people in other parts of the state are doing. And then we also use these solution circles, which have been virtual for now, but these dialogues where we do this deep listening of um, of what people are telling us they need, which isn't always what we think, and then what they think the potential solutions ought to be. And so that's a summary, but it's, it's all about the systems. You know, I believe in yeah. systems analysis, this affected, this, this affected, this, this caused this. And I think most reporting doesn't look at things systemically. I think we're seeing more that does now. And I'm, I'm thrilled about, it. I've been doing some presentations and consulting with some people in other states about how to do this, but everybody needs to do that. It's like, that's what I meant about, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't just need to be your black reporters. And in the case of race violence, which is one of my specialties, it's like that you, I'm not going to ask a black reporter to do uh, reporting on just traumatic, brutal race violence that happened in these counties, unless they want to do it. Yeah. Because, I, I, I think that's, you know, in it, white people's burden in some ways to to face white terrorism and to make sure that people understood understand how that worked. And the effects, not just that you may have seen me say this. I hate the crazy clucker in the corner syndrome. I came up with that phrase some years ago. You know, and but people across the country do it in some way or not. Oh, that was just Mississippi. Oh, it was so racist down there. Or that was in Mississippi. Oh, that's that crazy redneck that lived over in that part of town. And what ends up being true is that the whole, all of the systems in the state of Mississippi to the daily newspaper company that owned the Clearing Ledger and the Jackson Daily News work together in racist systems. And that's also true in the country, maybe not quite as pronounced as it was in Mississippi, so that's the stuff that we're trying to educate people about. And so we believe that when, and I've seen it happen, but we think this uh, new effort that's really, and we're getting different pieces of it funded. So that's one thing I wanted to mention the funding. You know, we've got, people love the mapping. We show them yeah, the maps. And, cool. So we say, you know, if you wanna you want to give us operations funds so we can spend it where we think we need, need it. We prefer that, but if you also wanna help fund, education project or if you want to help fund that like I've got one organization is who's I can't say what yet but is funding a healthcare reporter to work on a piece of it that starts basically at the beginning of the year for a year that's exciting you know Mm -hmm. um so that's kind of how we're we're trying to do it
2: so how can people (laughs) how where where can people go online to learn more about this what's the
4: well what I would say uh, well go to the website mississippifreepress.org which is also mfp.ms. There's a link at the top of our site for donating. Our fundraising from an individual level is really great because and from across the country, people really are liking what we're doing. And so, and then of course, the most, more small donors we get, the more large donors we can get. So that's very helpful to us. And our donation link is mfp.ms slash donate. Um, so I, yeah, I encourage people to do that. I think there'll be good good. Uh, there'll be a map there where you can kind of see how to see everything that we're doing here. We also do a show called MFP live. That was, that's pretty cool. Y'all can see more about that on the, in a podcast. So you can see all of that on the front page as well.
2: Well, this is all fantastic. This has been such a great discussion. I wasn't sure where where we were going to go, but we covered all my bases that I want to cover and much more totally, totally fascinating. So Donna Ladd, thank you so much for joining me today.
4: Thank you for having me. This is great.
2: The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Sophia Tarashenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signe Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Alison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail.